Well, if you were not here last week, this is the second of two messages that I'm sharing in relation to biblical marriage and same-sex marriage and the Supreme Court ruling on this matter that will probably be revealed in a month's time or so. And um, as I said, I shared some last week, and so I want to catch some of you up and then just head into this of what we're going to cover this week. Last week, I shared a, a definition of biblical marriage as we see it here at First Baptist. And so on your outline, it's on the top in the rectangular box. It's also up on the screen. But we shared about the fact that we here at First Baptist value marriage as a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman that reflects Christ's relationship with his church. And really, we ended there talking about his relationship with the church, the analogy there between us and God and sharing communion, the Lord's Supper, together as well. And we looked at last week how that definition is so contrary to what our culture is trying to push now. Trying to legalize and say normal and healthy behavior between a marriage of a man and a man and a man and a woman is what should be the norm. Trying to legalize same-sex marriage. In other words, our culture is trying to call the homosexual lifestyle, which the Bible calls sin, our culture is trying to call sin normal and healthy. That's really where it comes down to. Let's just call it what it is, calling sin as normal and healthy, which, as we mentioned last week, is a dangerous, dangerous place for a country to be. And so last week, I read from the book of Romans, chapter 1. In fact, I want to go back there and read from Romans 1 again. Um, But this week, I want to read it from the NIV version. I know many of you have that version. It says things a little differently than the ESV. And so let me read Romans, chapter 1, 24 through 27. Where God's word in defining, as I just defined a definition of marriage out of Ephesians chapter 5, let's look at the opposite in what people are trying to call marriage in our culture today through homosexuality. Here's what Romans says about that. It says, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over. And again, that's the second time that's used. Last week, we, at an ESV, we saw it was God gave them up. This is now God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The same way the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. And so I wanted to start just with that definition. I know that's kind of a, a, a heavy upon the service, but, but we're just saying it as it is today because maybe you have not heard that much in our culture. Our culture is trying to change things around. And as I shared last week, we all need to, and this is for us, church, we all need to search where our thoughts and our beliefs are on this homosexual issue. Because I have no doubt that there are some in here, maybe many in here, who have been floating along with the culture 
and have seen no reason for not to have it other than now being aware that God's word speaks out against that. Especially, hear, hear me on this, especially to the younger generation. If you have allowed media and culture to influence you, we really need to pinpoint this here today. And you need to understand what is right and what is wrong. You might think, you know, what's wrong with same-sex marriage? Or perhaps you have not really defined your opinion with scriptural truth, but rather allowed cultural relativism, allowed friendships around the shows that you've seen, the movies that you watch, to get that idea into you of when we say we can't allow men to marry men and women to marry women, we're persecuting them, we're not allowing tolerance. That's where our culture wants you to go. And as I said last week, there has to be, there has to be a foundational measure of truth. There has to be a place where we say what is right and what is wrong. And for thousands of years... That has been God's word. For hundreds of years, that has been God's word specifically in our country. And now, unfortunately, we're at that place where we're throwing this out. And where everyone now is saying, well, we'll just make a decision on our own. Or we'll leave it up to a court, to a judge to make his decision. That is where a postmodern society has come. That's what we live in now. Where everybody sees what is right and wrong on their own. Where everybody has their own feelings and are guided by feelings instead of on a basis of truth. And if you are, now I'm speaking to you here, church. If you are a Christ follower but you've never read how God wants you to follow, if you've really never gotten into Scripture and read that on a daily basis where you allow God's Word to speak to you, or you have blatantly ignored how God has asked you to follow Him, you know God's truth, but you've blatantly said, I'm going to go a different way and do my own thing. That is a scary place to be in because you are on the path where God gives you over. That's what, that's what it says here in Romans. God gave them over to their perversion. He gave them over to their sinful lusts. And you just need to know what path you're on. You need to know what direction you're going because it is so easy to flow with the culture when they don't realize what has taken place. But the consequences will catch up. Consequences will pay. There's a uh, professor um, that I heard about uh, who teaches at a Christian college. It's a, it's a Baptist college, a Christian college. And um, uh, a, a student approached him after one of the classes and said, You know, Professor, I'm having a hard time accepting the Bible as the inerrant, infallible Word of God. And at my devotion time has really not been very good. I'm struggling with hearing from God. And the professor kind of stopped him midstream and said, how long have you been sleeping with your girlfriend? Student kind of took a step back as though, uh, boy, I wasn't talking about that. I was talking about God's word. And he said, no, if you're starting to have some of these thoughts, if that's the direction you're going in your life, then there's a sin in your life. And the student knew right off, absolutely. The professor called him on it. And those kind of sins, those kind of shameful lusts, God allows to be the consequences of our decisions. And you know what it does? Here's what it does. I've had a lot of you say, hey, Pastor Brad, how are you feeling? We know you were sick on Mother's Day. We know you were sick for a few weeks after that. I live for about 10 days to two weeks with just kind of a low-grade fever. Just, wanted, just enough to make me feel bleh throughout the day, right? Just, just, just not feeling good. 
That's what sin does in our Christian walk. It makes us just kind of, with a relationship with God, just kind of, just, just enough to kind of get by. Sometimes we even kind of float in here to church and we're convicted, but, but we'll sing the songs or maybe the pastor doesn't have a real convicting message that week and so we'll get happy behind it. Everybody else is clapping. We'll clap. We'll kind of blend in, but we leave and we join back in with the stuff that we've been doing and we know it's a sin that is right in the face of God, blatant sin, and we just kind of live below the radar. We live with that yucky, low-grade fever feeling that God says is not how I want you to live. You are not designed to live that way. God's standards are high in this area. My standards I want to be high in this area. I want your standards as a church to be high in this area as well. Because God knows that sex is best inside of marriage between one man and one woman. And he do, he's not doing this to make a, a, so that he will get cast as a spiritual killjoy. That's not his heart. He says it because he knows that's what is best for you. He knows that's how your life is lived best. And he does not approve us ruining our lives. He does not want to just sit back. And so he doesn't just sit back and look the other way and say, well, that's all okay. Everybody else is doing it. They can do it as well. You, you got to know this. God's unchanging word on sexuality describes what is best for God's creation. That's you and me. Let me say that again. God's unchanging word on sexuality is taught here to give you what is best for you because that's how much God loves you. And I'm not just pointing the finger at homosexuality on this, this one. Please hear me on this. Any sexual relations outside of marriage, outside of the, the teachings that are there in Genesis 1 and 2, the context of that is damaging, whether it be heterosexual relations, whether it be premarital sex, it all violates God's word and ultimately harms us. And God does not approve of it, nor does he tolerate it, nor does he just look the other way. He loves us too much to do that. In fact, let's see how Jesus handles this. Go with me to John chapter 8. If you've been in church for very long, you've probably heard this passage taught If not, I want you to see how Jesus handles a delicate situation, dealing with sexuality. And how it alters some people's view on what they were trying to accomplish. John chapter 8, verse 2. It says, early in the morning, he, that was Jesus, came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. All right, it seems harmless enough. Let's, let's get together with Jesus here. The scribes and the Pharisees then brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, a sexual sin. She's been caught in her sin and placing her in the midst. They said to him, uh, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And John adds this bit of teaching to us. He says, they said this to test him, 
that they might have some charge to bring against him. So she's just a pawn, in other words. But Jesus uses that as a teaching. And what he did was he didn't really say anything at first. Scripture says he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. It says, and as they continued to ask him, so in other words, Jesus really isn't saying much. He's just on the ground writing, head down, eyes down. We don't know per se what he was writing. I happen to believe that he was probably writing some of the sins of the people who were asking him this question. They probably had not glanced down and seen their sins yet, but they'll get there. It says, um, as they continued to ask him, then he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. Verse 9 says, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. As he writes in the ground, he probably hears the rocks being dropped and people turning and walking away. And to break the silence as now Jesus looks up and it's just him and the woman. He says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. And we read this story and we think there it is that Jesus in his love, in his grace, allows her to go free, allows her to not be stoned, turns the tables on the Pharisees and the religious leaders who are trying to corner him. And he says, you have no basis to do this. Don't point your finger. Don't be the one to throw the rocks. In fact, if you've never sinned on your own, you don't throw, then, then go ahead. You can enter in. You can throw a rock. And every one of them knew that they had sinned. Every one of them knew what they had done. And so we champion this, and some people end the story right there. However, that's not where the story ends. It says, neither do I condemn you. However, what does Jesus now say? He says, now go. And from now on, sin no now, now, why did Jesus say that? Kind of ruins some of the story for some people who want to just show Jesus as this, you know, loving, all grace-filled person. Jesus said this because he knew the terrible consequences for anyone who stays in a lifestyle of sin. Did he have grace? Yes, he had grace. But did he have truth? Absolutely had truth. Simply put, there are consequences to sin because God loves us. As a parent, if you would never discipline your children, you are not loving your children. As a parent, you are given God-given orders to discipline your children, show them right from wrong, so that they grow up honoring their parents, so that they grow up honoring those in authority, so that they grow up ultimately to honor God. And if God just turned his back, if Jesus just ignored what she was doing and just gave her grace and said, hey, I don't condemn you and was on his way, 
He knew that would not be showing her love. He challenged her then. He said, don't stay in the lifestyle that you're in because you will find ruin at the end of that. Go and sin no more is what he said. That's the love in the midst of this. And what scares me about this decision that the Supreme Court is is coming to a conclusion on and how our country views blatant sin as probably now, and, and the majority of people now are becoming more and more like this, and as generations go on further and further away from this truth of seeing it as being okay, that view is scary because what it does, as I talked about last week, is it takes God out of the equation. We, we, have, a, we have a godless society because God has already spoken on this issue. We have a godless, this is scary, even more scary, a godless Christianity where we call ourselves Christians, but we don't care what God's word says. We don't care how he's teaching us. And that's the whole argument that the creation-evolution debate brought in a number of years ago into our society. When you look through the lens of a Christian worldview, you see the very first four words of the Bible are, in the beginning what? In the beginning, God. There he was. This whole creation-evolution idea, in the beginning, God, is the Christian worldview. The secular worldview says there is no beginning. We just kind of morphed an amoeb from whatever to whatever, and everything is random because if there is no God, then ultimately we don't have to be accountable to God. We don't have to be accountable to anyone, and then moral standards don't matter. Our legal system can't mandate behavior. And let me tell you, folks, Anarchy is not very far behind. And that's really the road that we are on. I don't know if you heard about the story. Um, it might have been seven, ten years ago. But of um, this guy at Cal Berkeley who uh, wanted to come to class naked. He was called the naked guy in the news stories. And what was going on here is uh, administrators at Cal Berkeley were paralyzed for months over the behavior of this student because of his practice of walking around the campus in the nude. He jogged around campus in the nude. He ate in the dining halls in the nude. He attended classes while being totally naked. I just like to come in and sit behind him in a class. And when he was asked why he did this, he said to protest sexually repressive traditions in Western society. And it took the Cal administration, all fall and all winter to deal with the outrage. I I happen to believe they were trying to maybe freeze him out, right? Make him wear clothes because it was going to be so cold. It took them all fall and all winter to try and come up with some legal excuse or school regulation that would make the naked guy suit up or ship out. They couldn't do it. Anarchy. People just deciding what they want to be right is right. And you can't tell me what's my right, and I won't tell you what's your right. That is called a postmodern society. That's the anything goes kind of place that we are now in where two-thirds, actually two-thirds of people in our society believing that there is no absolute truth. There is no black and white truth. There is no right and wrong truth. Folks, there has to be a moral compass. There has to be, and that cannot be a judge's interpretation. That can't be some sort of legalized morality, and in the shifting sands that we are in, it can't just be our feelings or our emotions. It has to be, as I would propose this, it has to be the Word of God. 
God's word. If we do not go as this being the rule books, then we can just do whatever we want to do. In fact, we can deflate footballs if we want to deflate footballs and throw them differently, can't we? Someone got caught on that one, didn't they? Because there's rules, there's guidelines, there's boundaries. When someone runs out of bounds, the whistle blows, play over. What if someone just said, well, you know what? I'd like to go a little further out of bounds. You guys don't worry about me. I'll just, and then I'll come back in. No, there are things in place that say timeout, penalty. That's not right. That's where we are. Who interprets that? Who shows? Right now, it's in the hands of the Supreme Court. Should be in this hand. On the back of your outline, let me go over a few points about where this is going to land us. Where are we going? I'll go over these very quickly. I shared this first one last week. Let me share it again. Legalizing same-sex marriages will lead down a slippery, slippery slope. Because you have got to know it is not going to stop there. I mean, it will go to, well, can we now do group marriage? Can we do marriage between relatives? Can we do marriage with men and children, women and children? Can I marry my animal, men with boys, sex with a minor? All those things are going to come into play if this door is open. And the media is trying to desensitize us. The media for over 10, 12 years has had this as an agenda. If you watch much TV or movies, you'll see, especially in television shows, there's usually the gay token person who is in there just to kind of get everybody used to that type of thing. Even, note this, superheroes. Do you remember a few years ago when it came out that one of the superheroes was gay? Remember hearing that? And the big announcement was coming. You know, we're talking Superman, Batman, Captain Marvel, and all those. It was going to be one of the superheroes that was gay. Where did that idea come from? Do you remember who it was? My money was on Robin, but um, <laughs> it was the Green Lantern. Green Lantern. Let's make one of the characters gay so that everybody else can kind of get used to this and just realize that's just the way it is. It is a slippery, slippery slope. In fact, let me just talk to you a second about this word intolerance or or tolerance um, because it's interesting what this word has come to mean in regards to same-sex marriage. Follow me on this. Tolerance used to mean you can believe what you want to believe And you need to allow me to believe what I believe. It was a little bit of this talk of live and let live. But in regards to this issue where we have the militant, and I say that word not lightly, militant same-sex activist movement going on, there is a brain power behind this that is pushing this through our culture. Now they have come to say that tolerance means let us have our same-sex relationships. We get to call them marriage. And not only can't you speak out against it because we'll call it hate crime, but you also have to approve of it because we'll make it law. That's what it says. Let me share that point again. Tolerance is now meaning in this area. Let us have our same-sex relationships. We'll call it marriage. Not only can't you speak out against it because we uh, will call it a hate crime if you do, but you have to approve of it because we're going to make it law. Tolerance is not just allow us to do this and call it normal and healthy. It's that you can't speak out against it. It's that you need to also go along with it because 
Here's what's funny about this. We don't tolerate your opinion on the subject. You need to tolerate our opinion, but we won't tolerate your opinion, which is really God's opinion. We don't want to hear from the Bible. Anybody find that kind of odd that that's intolerance? And that's exactly what they're saying. We don't want with our opinion. Now, I realize I am casting broad generalities, but you know where I'm going with this and how this has invaded our culture and made us a backwards culture. What really is being said is in American our culture, here's what's really being said. We are sick of intolerant people and we're not going to tolerate them anymore. That, that, that's what is said on that. Okay? Okay? And let me say it in a little different way. People who claim to be tolerant are intolerant of intolerant people. That's what's going on there, which means they can't even tolerate themselves. And some of you will catch that at lunchtime today as you're looking at what that actually means and how that all fits together. But that's the reality of where we are at. By very definition of tolerance means you need to allow other viewpoints, but those viewpoints are now not being tolerated. That's intolerance to me. It has flipped on us, and it is just beginning. The doors are opening. Let me go to the second point. The impact on children will be profound. The impact on children will be profound. We have seen this in the Scandinavian countries, the Netherlands, and Belgium. They are farther ahead in this issue. I believe they legalized same-sex marriage maybe a uh, a decade, uh, 15 years ago, somewhere in there. And there are studies that are being done on the children, seeing the socially unstableness of them, seeing even now suicidal tendencies in people's uh, families because of the, the, the structure of the family. There's a, a member here at our church who works in the medical field. And um, she was uh, working with a child, and uh, the parent was in the room. And so taking some, just some medical uh, things and some registration of, of the patient. And the, the medical staffer was talking to a, a woman who was a woman in looks and name and physical characteristics, but she introduced herself as the child's father. And it took this, this, this nurse back a little bit, and she said, uh, excuse me? She, the gal said, yeah, the, the mother is out in the waiting room. I'm the child's father. That's how the child now knows the term father or dad, as being a female. It used to be that we could say, well, I have two mommies. No longer true. Now they're saying one of those is taking the role of mommy, and another one is taking the role of dad. Men, dads, they are emasculating your God-given position. They come and just full bore, just assault on it. And what confusion this child will now grow up in. And while you can't control other people, I would encourage you, your sphere of influence, do it right, get it right, pray for our nation, pray for our country, because this is the road we are hurling down third point on the back of your outline. Teaching requirements will be mandated even more than they are right now because some of this is already in the public schools, textbooks, stories read to children even in the elementary years, um, history being kind of rewritten to give equal space to the homosexual agenda. That will become more and more and more 
into our education fields. And then lastly in this area, I wrote the spread of same-sex marriages will be worldwide. It'll be worldwide. Reality shows us, though, as we crossed the line in Massachusetts and California years ago, countries now have even jumped ahead of us. The United States will actually be the 19th country. If we legalize same-sex marriage, we'll be the 19th country to have done so. Already 18 countries in that place. You probably even heard about it a couple weeks ago. Ireland, supposedly at one point a Christian nation, Ireland voting to legalize same-sex marriage. It seems inevitable that our culture and our world is headed down that path. And yet, Christians, church, we are called to live differently. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. We are called to a higher standard. We are called to God's word. We are called to do this differently. And please hear my heart on this, though, because I'm not one who likes to jump up and down. I'm not one who likes to get in someone's face. I don't think that really changes their life. We need to wake up, though. We need to be aware of this. But as we search and as we pray for people, I want us to take the love of Jesus. I want us to take the approach of Jesus, who, who, who didn't con- condone what was going on, didn't say it was right, didn't say, yes, woman, what you're doing is great, high five, now go on your way. He said, I give you grace, I give you love, but I don't want to see you stay in this lifestyle. I don't want to see you continue down this path. God has better things for you. We are called to love people, but it is not love to just turn away from sin and ignore it. And so what do we do? What do we do? As the Holy Spirit speaks to you, please hear my words and perhaps put these into practice. A few thoughts down at the bottom of the page where we said, what do we need to do? First, and this is, this is so key, ask and search in your own heart if you if you believe God's word is truth. That is so key, to believe that God's word is truth. This is where it all begins. As soon as Satan can tempt you to believe that God's word isn't truth, then he's got you on the verge of editing out whatever verses you don't like. And that is a race downhill from there. We must be a people and we must be a church that honors and believes and follows the full word of God, not just the verses we like to to champion and the ones that we don't like to hear. It's all there for our understanding. It's all there for our reproof. It's all there for our teaching. And so I'm pointing the finger at myself and all of us first. We've got to get this right in our own lives first. But Pastor Brad, they're such nice people. I'm not saying they're not nice people. I'm saying God's word has the best plan for us and for others. And again, I'm not asking you to throw something in their face. I'm asking you to look in the mirror and say, if I truly believe God's word, then I need to understand what God's word is saying and live according to that word. Because the second point I wrote down was this. Stand up for the truth. If you believe it's God's truth, then stand up for God's truth. As it says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I, I appreciate and want to say thank you to many of you who emailed me and texted me last week, talked to me um, about sharing the message I did last week, as well as sharing the message here today about standing up for that truth. I realize, I, I've been working with, and for a number of years working over in Crosswalk, I realize in the younger generation, there are many people who think oppositely of what I'm talking about right now. And if you're here and you disagree, I'm okay with that. As long as you don't stay where you're at, as long as you are willing to talk about things, as long as you're willing to dialogue about it, and I will be very respectful of you. If you want to email me, if you want to call, in fact, I told you last week, I went out to coffee with a gentleman a couple of months ago, uh, just to kind of say, okay, where is God's teaching on this, and where do you believe this stands? Because I wholeheartedly believe. He just never saw the connection between what God's Word says and how that needs to influence what we believe. And if you come around here, you're going to hear that, but you're going to hear that in grace and truth because that's what I want us to be filled with, folks. I want us, it says in John 1, Jesus, full of grace and truth. Grace, forgiveness, love, but also truth. And we will speak God's word in truth and in love. Ephesians 4, 15 talks about that. Speak the truth in love. And so people of First Baptist, you are called to do that as well. And and I just challenge you, dialogue with somebody. If you believe that they have different beliefs than yours, see what they believe. Understand it. In fact, a lot of what they will even tell you about the Bible, what they believe about the Bible, is not what the Bible's saying. They will cast you into, well, you say this and you believe this. No, no, no. Have them tell you what they are, what they do believe. And then you can show them what the Bible does say. Do it in truth. Do it in love. You don't need to come and say, well, you need to get together with my pastor. No, you can share it. You know God's word. You know God's truth. If you weren't aware of it before this, these last couple of messages, if you weren't here last week, go listen to that again. Hear that. Share, dialogue, ask questions, but do it in love. Lastly, point I wrote down was this. Pray the gospel will change lives. Pray that God's word will change life. And it does when we are obedient to it. And I want to challenge you, church. If you're not a prayer warrior, be a prayer warrior on this, on this instance. Some of you can pray 15, 20 minutes, an hour at a time. Devote that to the next few days and weeks leading up to the Supreme Court decision. Others of you put some little reminder onto your calendar or onto your watch. Let it chime, let it ding. You know that that's a place of, of, of praying this up. Pray that the gospel gets in front of people. Pray that the gospel change lives. You don't have to change someone's life. Let the Holy Spirit do that. Look at what it says here in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're in Christ, we're changed by this word. Last week, um, I met with a man who is a regular attender here at First Baptist. He said, Pastor Brad, I need to get together with you. Here's what he said. He said, for years, I lived the gay lifestyle. He said, I was one of those proud gays. He said, while you were preaching a number of years ago about uh, Proposition 8, I was out picketing Proposition 8. I was opposed to what the Bible said. I was opposed to what God's Word said. I was opposed to what the church said about this. But right in the middle of a sentence... He says, I now know that that was a lie. 
that the homosexual life is a lie. He said he actually received Christ in his younger years. But after walking with the Lord for a while, he, he kind of put God on the back shelf. He said he still knew God. In fact, here's what he said. He said, I was content with a relationship with God as a gay man, but God was not content with me as a gay man. He said, God loved me too much to leave me in my sin. And he said, praise God. And yet, here's what God allowed him to do. It goes right back to Romans 1. God gave him over. God gave him up because his homosexual lifestyle didn't just stop at homosexuality. It walked over into other devious sexual behavior, which landed him in prison. Know that, that when you start walking down a sinful lifestyle, it usually just doesn't stop there. You enter in through a little portal, and you end up way down the road, and you look back and you say, how in the world did I get here? It's because we blatantly just ignore God's word. And he did. He landed in prison. But he said, that was when God's word got a hold of me. He said, I began to read it because I had nothing else to do. And I began to have people come in and do Bible studies with me and to teach me. And I just absorbed God's word. And then he just, he had a Bible in his hands. He put down the table. He said, that word rocked my life. It changed my life. And he said, Pastor Brad, tell the church, tell the people of First Baptist, tell those who listen on the internet. We have dozens and dozens who live on, listen on the internet. He said, you can make a change too. The gospel lets you do that. The Holy Spirit comes in and changes your heart, changes your life. You can overcome it. He said, I know it because I have overcome it. And to just kind of live in this lie of, well, this is just the way I am. This is just where I'm going to say is not what good word, God's word talked about. Jesus did not go to the cross for us to still live in our sin. Now, I'm not saying we are perfect people. As I said last week, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But if you're living in a lifestyle and championing that lifestyle and calling it normal and healthy, and it's against God's word, then what's God going to do about that? He'll probably allow the consequences of the lifestyle to ruin your life. And that's why he's using me. That's why he's using his word. That's why he's using you in people's lives to say, hold on, time out. Let's look at this in a little different way. Let's look at this through God's view. Let's look at this as what God wants you to be, not staying with a low-grade fever, but to living with joy in life. That's why Jesus went to the cross. And he didn't just go to the cross for homosexuals. He didn't just go to, cross, to the cross for heterosexuals who are having sex outside of marriage. He didn't just go to the cross even for idolaters or for gossips or glutton or liars or cheaters or murderers, something we all are in one way or another. He went to the cross for everyone, for every sin that has been committed and every sin that will be committed. But it needs to come underneath the lordship of Christ to say, God, I recognize that as being wrong and I want to get it right with you. That's what confession is. That's what forgiveness is. That's what John 1 talks about. Grace and truth. God's truth embodied in Jesus. Grace given to us. That's what he showed in John 8. He told the woman, my grace I give you and I forgive you. I'm freeing you. But don't stay where you're at. 
God has so much more for you. If you today have not experienced that grace, then that's what we're going to take care of first and foremost. You are not here by accident today. You are here because God guided you. And for some of you, he's going to guide you into a relationship with him even now. Let's pray. God, your word does change lives. I'm standing in front of hundreds of people who can give account of that. Perfect people, by no means. But changed, yes. And so let me ask you, first and foremost, if you are here today, and you never perhaps realized how much sin hurts God, if you never realized what sin does to your relationship with God, if you've never been in a relationship with God, today maybe you have woken up to that fact that you need a Savior, you need forgiveness, you need Jesus in your life. Today, if you've come to realize that today, it's because God's Holy Spirit is knocking on your heart. He's saying, let me in, let me help you live this life. You know the misery that you're living in. I have a better way for you to walk. And today, Jesus is asking, would you accept me by faith? Would you ask for forgiveness of the lifestyle that you've lived, whatever that may have entailed? Would you turn and would you follow me? And if today, that's your day, then right where you're at in your own chair, would you just pray these words, Jesus, today is the day I choose to follow you. I might not know everything about this. I might not know how to live my life according to your ways. But Jesus, I'm inviting you in to teach me. I'm inviting you in to lead me. I'm making a U-turn. I'm following you now. I receive you by faith. And in your own heart, if you've just prayed those words, then Jesus promises to come in and to walk with you, and to teach you and to lead you, to give you Life that is centered on his joy. If today, that's your decision, I pray you come down and talk to me afterwards. Talk to one of our staff members here or out in our Next Step Center. We uh, have some information. You can talk to a counselor who is there. They'll introduce you to, to myself. I just want to share some thoughts with you. Because you are on a brand new journey. You're on a journey that is saying yes to Christ and for the way that you are intended to live your life. Church, perhaps today you've become awakened to um, how much our culture has taken, how much our culture is, is putting on even our Christian faith and freedoms. I want to challenge you to pray. I want to challenge you to pray like you've never prayed before. Not only just to pray, though, that God would change things in our country, but that God will continue to change your heart as well. To be able to speak up, to be able to stand up, for God's truth. And this week, as you encounter people, this week, as conversations are started, even by you, I would pray that you would look back on conversations and say, wow, I never thought I could even lead something like that. I never thought I could share that. That's God's Holy Spirit working in you. But it begins by you praying, God, would you continue to change my heart? May my heart break for the things that makes your heart break. God, I thank you for your gospel that changes lives. So many examples across this room. We want to live out that gospel. And even now as we sing this one last worship song, can I pray it's a word that would just go true to our heart and that would be sung in our heart as we leave this place. Not just so that we come in here and 
cheer and worship and hear your word, but God, so that we go live it out. We worship you now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.